Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordial Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack Oswetsu and Gergovacci of Cordial Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. Listeners, welcome to the NK News podcast. For this week's short interview, I'm talking to Arius Dare, who was formerly the managing editor of NK News, and now he's in Australia. Arius, what are you doing down there? Well, I'm doing my PhD dissertation at the Australian National University, Jacko. And what's that all about? The uh, What's your PhD focusing on? Well, you won't be too surprised to hear that it's about North Korea. Uh, oh. Specifically, I'm looking, I'm looking at the U.S.'s policy of CVID and trying to understand why the U.S. has has basically clung to the idea that denuclearization, irreversible, complete denuclearization, is still a viable policy path forward with North Korea, even after you know close to two decades of North Korea being a de facto nuclear power. Yeah, CVID, for those listeners who just woke up and started listening to us yesterday, is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. It's only one letter off of COVID, you realize that? That's right. I, I think that this is an unexplored link that perhaps we could commission some sort of NK Pro analysis for. Yes, look into that, and particularly the uh, the links that uh, might uh, implicate Bill Gates in all of this. Absolutely. The drones are certainly certainly responsible for something here. Make sure you wear your foil hat. Now, Arius, Wait, which, in a, which in podcast a... am I on again? <laughs> it's not Alex <laughs> Jones. Uh, in a previous life, you used to work on the, uh, the U.S. military base in Seoul, and you've obviously been watching what's been going on, uh, all the stories around the, the border crossing last week at the JSA. What are your thoughts on it all? It is just such a bizarre story, first of all. It has happened so rarely in the yeah. you know, 70 plus years uh, of U.S. presence on the peninsula. Right. You know, firstly, I, I feel quite sorry for the King family and, and, yes. and his loved ones. I, I think that he clearly has some sort of mental and, and other issues that, you know, encouraged him to make the decision that he made. But, you know, we are left now, you know, kind of wor worried about this guy just from a humanitarian view. Yeah. And, and and certainly his family and friends, I'm, I'm sure, really hope that he can be rescued or at least be sent back uh, safe and sound. Yes. I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, talk around him probably having regretted the decision that he made already. And if that's the case, then we hope that they're able to that the uh, United Nations command is able to work out some sort of a, you know, a return with the Korean People's Army. Do you think it's possible that he, he might 
think actually he's cut, he's made the right decision and that he might just stay there like some small number of US military defectors well, 50, 60 years before him. Yeah, it, it it's hard to imagine because what whatever sort of privilege and exceptional existence foreigners are given in North Korea, I mean, the, the quality of life there is going to be so poor, particularly for a US military person. I, I can't imagine that the paranoid regime is, is going to give him any sort of agency or freedom, even you know, compared to the relative autonomy that uh, other foreigners that have defected or that were kidnapped uh, or that found themselves in North Korea have been granted over the decades. So I I, I really can't imagine uh, mm. that he's going to enjoy it. But but again, that assumes that he's playing with a full deck. His incentive, his incentives, and his kind of kind of what Travis is, is responding to may be a little bit different than what you and I might. So who knows? Maybe he'll he'll really enjoy it. That's true. Uh, caveat to our listeners here, neither Arius nor I are trained mental health professionals, and so we're not qualified to make Absolutely. any speculative yeah, uh, no. diagnosis. But I'm just thinking, assuming that he was looking forward to, not looking forward to, assuming that he could expect to receive a dishonorable discharge back in America after he you know, had served time in a Korean prison, that may have, you know, may have swung his decision. I spoke once about a decade ago to an American soldier who was about to go back to the United States to be dishonorably discharged after um, being caught in an off-limits area after curfew uh, in Korea. And so he was going to go back and, and be demoted and, and get a dishonorable discharge. And he basically told me, Jacko, this is, um, uh, it makes life in the United States very difficult. I'll never be able to get a good job again because that'll always be on my record that I've got a dishonorable discharge. And he was actually talking about emigrating to Israel because he could start again there and nobody would know um, his dishonorable discharge back in the United States. And I thought you know, maybe that kind of weighed heavily on on, on Travis's mind and uh, forced him to make a decision that ultimately, as we agree, uh, isn't a good one. You know, look, whatever, you know, mental health issues he may or may not have, and, and that, that's it's good of you to point that out. We, we actually have no idea. This is, this is pure speculation. And I certainly don't want to, you know, put anything on record that may kind of skew the narrative here when there's so many question marks. You know, even even if uh, that is not a case, you know, he's he's a young kid. He's 20 something, 21, 23, I think. Yeah. I mean, he 23 year olds make impulsive decisions all the time. It, yeah. It's entirely possible that he he was not thinking five seconds ahead and just right. kind of thought, hey, what would happen if I jumped jumped across the border? here? Right. That's entirely possible. Yeah. Now, I went to the press conference yesterday with the deputy commander of, of the UNC, uh, the United Nations Command. Uh, Brigadier General Andy Harrison, and it was a, a a briefing that had been scheduled weeks before the border crossing last week. But as you can imagine, a lot of the journalists were there to simply ask about Travis King and his whereabouts and where he is and whether the UNC is in communication with the KPA. And as you can imagine, Brigadier General Harrison had been uh, well media trained and was able to deflect all the questions with a, uh, all I can say is that uh, things are ongoing and, you know, I don't want to say anything that might prejudice those processes. So, uh, I can't tell you any information. So we we were there. We learned precious little about that. But we did learn a lot about the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Korean War armistice and just how important that still is today for keeping the peace. And he actually uh, he made he made a good speech and linked it in or tied it into the situation in Ukraine and how important the value of multinational, multilateral sort of guarantor of a peace is for uh, for situations to prevent exactly the kind of thing that we've, we've seen with the war that Russia's uh, waging on Ukraine right now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and certainly in the NK News newsroom, uh, we are also looking forward to the 70th anniversary of that armistice signing, but for slightly different reasons. As our listeners may know, 
North Korea's narrative, uh, in, in North Korea's telling of events, they won the war. The war was actually started by the U.S. Uh, and South Korea by invading North Korea's sovereign territory, and they repelled the invaders. And so we're looking at this, what is likely to be a, a very large-scale military yeah. uh, this week uh, on on or around the 27th. Right, because the the, uh, the North Koreans don't like to uh, to give too much away. They don't really give out a schedule saying at exactly this time on this day we'll have the parade and then we'll broadcast it at this and this time. So we really always kept guessing. Now, it seems possible, I think the current talk at the moment is that the parade might be at nighttime on Thursday the 27th, which means that we'll see the first photographs in the Rodong Shinmun on the morning of Friday the 28th, and then it may be broadcast in an edited package on the afternoon of Friday the 28th. That's how things have, have often worked in the past, isn't it? Yes, certainly the last several North Korean military parades have been nighttime events with fireworks and really cool lighting effects. And it, it all looked very majestic and threatening and, you know, very cool if you're a North Korean wonk like you and me. Yeah, and we saw a story yesterday come out by our colleague Colin Zwerko about a new structure that has been put up somewhere near the Ark of, of Triumph in, uh, in Pyongyang, quite large, and uh, not sure what's in there at the moment. It could be covering some new weapons technology, or it could be a giant banquet area that's uh, been set up temporarily for a banquet out there on the Kim, near Kim Il-sung Square on the day of the parade. So there's, there's a lot of questions, a lot of things to be looking at this parade for. Will there be showing off new stuff? Will they have brought Travis King up there? I certainly hope not, but that would be uh, the possibly the wow. kind of propaganda. Now, 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 we're, now we're really getting into speculative territory, although that, that, that would be something. Maybe that's what that structure is. It's to... Uh... It's, it's, it's a big presentation for their newest VIP. Yeah. Oh, speaking of VIPs, uh, you saw last night that uh, North Korea has announced that a Chinese delegation will be coming to North Korea this week. They'll be arriving on Wednesday, so that's tomorrow. And yeah. presumably they're here mainly for the parade. And that will be the first big delegation that's arrived from China or from any country since COVID. I'm bracketing the arrival of the, the, Ch the new Chinese right. ambassador and his entourage. But this is just a, a visiting group who presumably will not be forced to go through any kind of quarantine. So that's that's quite a big deal. Uh, well, you know, not, not so fast. It's, it's entirely possible that they could arrive or perhaps they already have arrived. Uh, huh. We simply don't know about it, that they are being kept in some sort of hotel or maybe near the border. But it certainly is noteworthy, uh, as, as, as you point out. I mean, the ambassador who, when he arrived earlier this year, he gave every indication that this was kind of a one-off event. This was kind of a special case. Yeah, that obviously came amid rumors that North Korea was preparing for more routinized and and normal uh, cross border travel. That hasn't materialized uh, right. until this very Chinese delegation was announced. So I'm not entirely sure uh, what sort of quarantine and other lockdown procedures they may be facing. I, well, well, let me interrupt there and say that I yeah. I suspect, assuming that the North Korean news is telling uh, the reality here. I mean they. They put up a, a screenshot of their uh, news last night that says literally a government delegation from the People's Republic of China is arrive will visit uh, our country yeah. from from the uh, the twenty sixth. So that that means they're oh, arriving. Yeah. They're arriving on Wednesday. Yeah. So that means yeah, it, Look, I, this is correct. There's no quarantine. I think we've just solved what that giant structure is. Uh, clearly, it is an ah. isolation structure for the right. Chinese delegation to to be apart from the North Koreans, uh, <laughs> several hundred feet, perhaps. Um, you know, glass glass enclosed. Uh, ah. they, they can watch the the military procession, and then uh, they can then be lifted all together into the airplane hours after the event. I, I think we solved the mystery here. 
look, that certainly seems feasible. Let's uh, let's keep an eye on that. Will you be watching uh, the parade in Australia as soon as you can? Absolutely. Well, I'll be watching it through our website because I'll be uh, helping cover the big event. Ah, fantastic, fantastic! Great to know that you're uh, you're still working with us, even though you're now on on another continent. I see you're you're following the great tradition of uh, Jeff Flake moving down to. Uh, <laughs> sorry, not Jeff Flake. Hang on, Gordon Flake. Gordon right? Flake. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. Over, oh. wrong, wrong, wrong Flake cousin. Gordon Flake moving <laughs> from moving down to Australia to report on Indo-Pacific security issues uh, from a safe distance. Is, is is this why you've gone there? <laughs> yes, that's exactly why. Big big shoes to fill, but certainly enjoying my time, my my very brief time so far. Have a lot to learn about you know Australasia and Oceania and and, and different security dynamics and perspectives here. Uh, right. So far, really really loving it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you've got to stay on after this. After the break, we have an interview with Mark Sauter, who has uh, spent a lot of time researching Korean War missing in action and POWs who never returned after the signing of the armistice. So that's the big feature interview today. So stay on the line for that one, Arius. All right, will do. Thanks very much for talking to me today. <laughs> you too, Jacko. Till next right. time. See ya. Attention North Korea portfolio professionals, are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. For this week's long interview, I'm joined via Zoom by Mark A. Sorter. Mark served as a U.S. Army Special Forces and Infantry soldier, serving time in the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea. And he's here to talk about Korean War prisoners of war who did not come back after the signing of the armistice 70 years ago this year and the book that he's written about that topic. Welcome on the show, Mark Sorter. Pleasure to be here, Jacko. So uh, as I hinted at uh, in the introduction, together with uh, your co-author, John Zimmerley, you wrote a book called American Trophies that people can order on Amazon. Basically, as I understand it, you and your co-author claim that many U.S. prisoners of the Korean War and missing in action soldiers never made it home because they were kept by the Chinese, the Soviets, or the North Koreans. Is that it in a nutshell? That's correct. And the book also discusses related issues such as use by the North Koreans of U.S. Uh, POW MI remains uh, as a cash cow, as a natural resources to get money from the United States and mm -hmm. related issues. But really, since 1989, I have been researching Americans from the Korean War who were alive at the end of the war 
-hmm. and were not returned and for whom there was evidence that they were retained in the Soviet Union, China, and North Korea. And the okay. effort has been to find out what happened uh, both on a broad level, but also for specific cases of uh, individual Americans. And by the way, uh, your readers, listeners rather, know that there were many allies fighting alongside the United States in the mm -hmm. Korean War, most importantly, the South Koreans. And your listeners probably know that uh, dozens of them, of South Korean POWs, were reported alive in North Korea into recent years, and many mm. thousands of South Korean POWs were kept both in North Korea, but also a number of them were shipped off to the Soviet Union. There have also been reports of some allied POWs, uh, British and the like, who may have been mm -hmm. kept as well during this uh, process that occurred uh, during and after the Korean War. Okay, well, let's start with the basics. When the armistice was signed on July 27, 1953, do we have a, a ballpark figure of roughly how many uh, U.S. And, and allied prisoners were known to be in the hands of the communist side and how many were missing or suspected to be in the hands of the communist side at that time? So this is before the actual switch took place? Absolutely. So when we include the United Nations uh, forces and the uh, South Korean military, there were tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of uh, allied troops who had who had not returned had not been accounted for and were potentially either kept or had died on the communist uh, side of the lines and for whom the united nations uh, wanted an accounting the most important backdrop to all of this is that the korean war essentially had a hostage crisis for much of it so from the summer of 1951, a year into the war, until the armistice was signed two years later, the war was prolonged by negotiations about the POW-MIA issue between the communist side, which was officially the North Koreans, Chinese volunteers, who were actually, of course, the Chinese military, and unofficially the Soviet Union, which not only was paying for much of the communist effort, but had a then relatively unknown number of advisors, fighter pilots, anti-aircraft units actually fighting in the war. And the hostage crisis uh, came down to a couple factors. The first and most important one was that the United Nations had captured huge numbers of soldiers fighting for the communist military. That would be North Koreans, but quite notably, many thousands and thousands of soldiers fighting for the Chinese. Many of the soldiers fighting for the Chinese had previously been fighting against the Chinese government or the Chinese uh, communist movement. And when the communists took over China in 1949, many of the prisoners they had captured who were fighting for the non-communist side were forced into the communist Chinese military and then sent to fight in Korea. And the conditions were horrendous. The Chinese soldiers were not well equipped. They many times did not even have winter uniforms during the most frigid times in, in North Korea. And a lot well, Mark, of. I'm going to have to break in here uh, because a lot of this stuff we, we covered in the, um, the, an earlier podcast with uh, David Cheng Cheng. And I, I don't want to repeat too much of this yep. because it'll take away the time from the, the right. bit that your but, book focuses on. So I'm going right. to right. skip ahead. It, sure. But the key part was the communists wanted all of their prisoners to be returned, whether they wanted to return or not. And many thousands of them did not want to return. 
So the negotiation was, would all POWs be returned, whether they wanted to go back to their original country, uh, country or not? Or would there be something called voluntary repatriation, where the individual prisoner could decide whether he wanted to, to go back home, say, to communist China, or he wanted to stay with the UN and then maybe go to Taiwan or stay in South Korea? This, this wrangling took about two years to resolve. And the United States uh, leadership was deeply divided over this because there was a fear that if we were to uh, force back all the Chinese POWs and, and North Korean POWs, that they would keep some of our prisoners. Mm -hmm. So it was a hostage crisis, which then continued after the war because there were many Chinese students and especially scientists who were in the United States who had not been allowed to go back to China, and China wanted them back to some extent for, uh, for military research purposes. The context was negotiating between the communist side and the US side about what prisoners would be returned. And um, in the end of the day, we allowed many communist troops to stay in the free world, and the uh, communists, in my estimate, and the uh, documentary record, I think, uh, shows convincingly kept a number of U.S. and an even larger number of South Korean POWs. Okay, what are the ballpark numbers we're talking about here? How many uh, prisoners on the uh, the U.N. and South Korean side were not allowed to come back? In the tens of thousands, most of those were South Korean prisoners. We're not exactly sure how many South Korean prisoners were killed, how many were sent to Siberia, but they were in the thousands. The universe of American prisoners who were likely alive and potentially taken is in the high hundreds. The estimates, uh, for example, a former Eisenhower White House intelligence staffer told me uh, before he died that he had estimated and he had briefed the White House uh, that there were about 800 Americans who mm. were sent to the Soviet Union, most of them, and then some others kept in North Korea. As mm. of today, there are about 7,500, a few more than that, American POW MIA from, from the Korean War, the vast bulk of those were killed in action. They okay. were never prisoners. They're only missing because they were killed in engagements, many, many of them, in uh, late 1950 when the Chinese intervened in what is now North Korea. They were killed, left on the battlefield, and because the battlefield ultimately became North Korea, there has yeah. been no real access to account for them. So there's a universe of probably a thousand men could have been alive at the end of the war who mm -hmm. were seen being shipped. Uh, for instance, there were a number of train shipments reported from North Korea through China up to uh, the Soviet Union. Those trains, uh, according to a number of the people who saw them and then were later interviewed by U.S. intelligence, probably had hundreds of men in them. What has the uh, the Pentagon and other agencies of the U.S. government said for all these years about these claims? Yeah. So the first thing they did was during the war, they accused the communists of keeping prisoners and shipping them to the Soviet Union. Mm. But the problem was the negotiations to get the return of these men totally failed. The top United Nations general, General Mark Clark, at the end of the war said, that he knew and the U.S. knew that large numbers of U.S. POWs and South Korean POWs had been kept. Uh, did he say but, this on the record in public or did he say this? In... Abso absolutely, he said that in public. 
Now, meanwhile, a classified document, which was only released in recent years to me when I forced it out of the U.S. government under our freedom of information laws. Is this the document you found in the Eisenhower Presidential Library? Yeah, it, this is another one. So this one is from a year after the Korean War ended, mm -hmm. and it was from the uh, U.S. Chief of Staff for the Air Force, mm -hmm. and he sent a, uh, a then classified memo to the uh, CIA saying that a considerable number of U.S. POWs were still alive and asking the CIA to help rescue them. So there were the official story was that we thought the the communist side had not returned all the POWs. Unofficially, we were convinced and we had very specific evidence about a number of the men who were definitely mm -hmm. alive at the end of the war and not returned. But that information was kept classified. In fact, in one case, there was a U.S. Uh, intelligence officer named Leonard Button, Lieutenant Leonard Button, and it wasn't until 60 years after the war that the, the Pentagon declassified a file to me that showed that they knew he had been alive hmm. in North Korea as of May 1953, right before the POWs were supposed to be returned and he had never hmm. been returned. So the Pentagon, the CIA have kept many of these records classified. And in fact, I'm a party with a family member of one POW who is believed to have been taken to the Soviet Union, a, an aviator named Harry Moore, his family, and I have been suing the CIA and National Archives for several years now to try to get them to release POW MI information going back to the 1950s. Uh, it's but, just stunning. So they're, the pu publicly, they admitted different officials admitted it had happened at the time. But yeah. the United States had a big problem. And, and we know about this from this source of mine, a guy named Colonel Corso, who was in the Eisenhower White House, who was in charge of this issue at the White House. And he told me that they knew that the communists had kept POWs, but they also knew there was no way to get them back. And that they decided that rather than create a major flap that uh, they could not resolve, that they were going to back burner this issue. President Eisenhower did sign an executive order asking the agencies to try to recover them. But officially, all of these guys were declared dead in 1954, a year after the war, even those for whom there was compelling evidence in the classified files were last known alive. Let's talk about how this all started for you. So you're a, a former soldier. You served in the army here in Korea, in fact. But then in 1989, you discovered a memo at the Eisenhower Presidential Library that changed your life. Tell us about that memo and, and the journey that it sent you on. Uh, absolutely. So, Jacko, I had served in the Korean DMZ. I had uh, been a commander of one of the U.S. guard posts we used to have. I had run numerous missions in the DMZ to try to prevent uh, North Korean infiltration. I left the military, I became an investigative reporter, and I saw a brief notice in one of the U.S. military newspapers that the brother of a Korean MIA was suing the Pentagon, saying that the Pentagon knew that Americans had been kept after the war. I found this essentially impossible to believe because of my own experience, and I knew that the men with, her, with whom I uh, served in the Korean DMZ would have done anything to to save another American soldier from being kept by, captured and kept by the communists. I don't need to tell you anything about what the nature of the North Korean regime, you and your listeners look, know more about that than I do. So I found it difficult to believe, but I started doing a little investigating and I won a journalism award, which paid me to go to St. Louis. And instead of going to the journalism convention, I went to the Eisenhower National Library to 
to look for information. At the time, the Pentagon said there was no evidence at all that any Americans had been kept or that any Americans had been sent to the Soviet Union. So I was in the Eisenhower archive. I found an old dusty box. There was a piece of paper in it, and the title was Re-USPWs in USSR. In other words, Re-United States Prisoners of War in the Soviet Union. So I was uh, surprised by that, to say the least, given what the Pentagon had told me. And I took it to the front, and a very patient bureaucrat told me, okay, yeah, this is, this is in the box. And I said, well, how, how do I get the document? Because it was just a reference to the document. And he right. said, oh, that's classified. I said, holy cow, why is it classified? First off, the Pentagon said this never happened. Secondly, the document is five years older than I am. And he smiled patiently at me and said, here's a form, fill out this form, the government will process it. Now, the government kept that file secret for, I believe, more than five years after I filled out that form. It later turned out to be a document from a KGB defector talking about how Americans were sent to the Soviet Union. And actually, it was a, it was a defector who had been interviewed by my the man who later became my source in the White House. So hmm. I had the document. I had the reference to the document. I knew the government had it and wouldn't give it to me. So I had a source on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Congress. And I said, uh, hey, can you figure out what this is? And uh, because it was classified, it was very sensitive, as you can imagine. And he called yeah. me back and said, look, Mark, I can't say much, but find a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Phil Corso, and he will tell you what it is. And I found the guy, and he was the one who had been in the U.S. Uh, White House. And after talking to him, I started becoming convinced that, yes, indeed, Americans had been kept and that the U.S. government was doing its best to avoid trying to account for them. Is this avoiding to uh, avoiding responsibility is that the reason why these relevant documents from the DIA and the Pentagon and other agencies have remained classified for so long that's part of it although i have to say that the general bureaucracy of our classification system here in the united states is such that any documents can get stuck for decades but essentially what happened here is that in, a year after the war the pentagon and the us government realized they couldn't get these men back by the way, that same year in 1954, the State Department officially in public asked the Soviet Union to return the POWs it had taken from the Korean War. Hmm. Uh, and the Soviets essentially said, we don't know what you're talking about. So back during the time period of the Korean War and right after, the American public knew that there was a lot of evidence that men had been kept. But the U.S. government decided, in my estimate, that it couldn't do much. In fact, I found this in a document which was declassified from 1955. Let me read it to you. It said, this is a Pentagon official writing a, a secret document about the Korean War POWs. Quote, the problem becomes almost a philosophical one. If we are at war, cold, hot, or otherwise, casualties and losses must be expected, and perhaps we must learn to live with this sort of thing. If we are in for 50 years of peripheral firefights, we may be forced to adopt a rather cynical attitude on this, the POWs, for political reasons. This was the Pentagon. So we know that in, in the mid-50s, they, they just realized they couldn't get these guys back. Mm -hmm. the, they declared them all dead in 1954, which had a humanitarian component to it. That allowed the families to receive the death benefits. Right. And there was also generally a sentiment that why create expectations among the families of these thousands and thousands of men that their loved ones might come back? And, you know, even though in the on the classified side, they believe some of these men were still alive, they concluded there was no way to find them. 
So let's, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's skip. I want to skip forward now to 1996, where a North Korean defector named Oh Young Nam gave some testimony. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, and again, we had to force this out uh, via the Freedom of Information Act. In 1996, a North Korean defector who had been associated with the security services defected, and he told U.S. and South Korean officials that he had repeatedly seen 20 to 30 elderly Caucasians and Blacks in and around Pyongyang from 1982 to 1993. Uh, in fact, he had actually given beer to some of them. So uh, he asked his comrades, who were these people? And they said, these are the American POWs. And I'm quoting here, we interviewed Oh Young Nam, and he said, I was surprised that there were still American POWs alive. They all seemed to have families and their wives were North Koreans. And so uh, another topic, which you may have covered, Jacko, is the U.S. defectors to North Korea. Uh, yes. there, were, there were five of them, and I have extensive files on them, five Caucasians. There was another South Korean citizen in the U.S. Army, I think, was kidnapped and then died in North Korea. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the things that we've had to do over these many years is make sure that reports yep. of Caucasians and Blacks in North Korea were not one of the known defectors. So there were five Caucasian defectors during the Cold War, and in addition, 21 Americans, remember we talked about voluntary repatriation, decided sure. not to return to the United States after the war, although ultimately almost all of them did because mm -hmm. they, they went to live in China, which was obviously horrible and was did not match the propaganda they had been told about in the POW camps. So any of these reports that we talk about about men in North Korea, I believe are separate from and do not concern the defectors, because I've forced uh, many of the defectors' files out of the government as well to sort of see where they were and uh, make sure they match up. One, one key element of Oh Young Nam's statement about seeing these 20 to 30 elderly men were that many were black, mm. and none of the U.S. Army defectors to North yeah. Korea were black. Now, a couple of the defectors were interviewed in recent years before yeah. they died, uh, Jenkins yeah. and Dresnok. Did either of them mention encountering or seeing American or other prisoners of war? So a guy named Dresnok, who was a very uh, close follower of the communist line in North Korea, uh, to my knowledge, did not. A guy named Jenkins, who ultimately got out uh, alive to Japan because he'd married a Japanese woman and the Japanese government had been a lot more serious about recovering people from North Korea than our government has been. His file, some of them, surprise, still remain classified, but I have found references in some of his files he since died to him providing evidence on U.S. POWs from Vietnam who were sent to North Korea. There are multiple intelligence reports that the North Koreans who provided MiG pilot, jet pilot pilots to the uh, North Vietnamese to help fight the Americans. In fact, a North Korean pilot and MiG shot down at least one U.S. jet during the Vietnam War. The North Koreans also sent psychological operations and special operations to operate against the South Korean troops who were fighting along our side in Vietnam. But there were multiple reports, including from a pretty high-ranking Vietnamese defector, that some American prisoners captured in Vietnam were sent to North Korea, especially those who might be pilots or have knowledge that would help the North Koreans defend their airspace against the U.S. Now, in the case of the defectors, again, Jenkins and Dresnok are the two most famous names, they've appeared in some North Korean propaganda movies. 
Have any of these defectors ever been photographed or filmed either accidentally or in North Korean propaganda films? Not to my knowledge post the war. And in fact, a number of the declassified documents discuss a North Korean television series it variously translated to Nameless Heroes, which is actually a video that, that uh, I got when I was in North Korea in 1996, which has Caucasians in it, but those mm -hmm. Caucasians were the defectors. But some of the declassified documents say that some North Koreans thought they were POWs. So that goes to the issue of, right. of um, distinguishing between the defectors and those who might be uh, prisoners. So there are numerous live sightings of U.S. POWs surviving Ouyang Nam said to at least 93, but others in various parts of uh, North Korea, some of them are really tragic. One of them involves a, uh, a, a defector from North Korea who said he talked to the daughter of a U.S. POW and mm -hmm. saw this Caucasian guy and learned about his story. But there are also many, many reports from the Soviet Union of people who escaped from the gulag who said they had either seen American prisoners of war in the gulag or or had heard about them. And so I don't know of any pictures post-war of these POWs. Uh, there are, of course, cases, and, and you and I have talked about Major Sam Logan, a U.S. aviator who was shot down in the fall of 1950 at the very beginning of the war. And he was filmed in North Korean captivity and perfectly okay with the smoking wreckage of his B-29 behind him. And mm -hmm. a still image of Major Logan was sent by the Soviet news agency around the world. And yet, despite being filmed in North Korean captivity, he disappeared off the face of the earth and was never accounted for. We can track him as far as Pyongyang, where he scratched his name into the wall of a prison cell there, as mm -hmm. did another man who never returned, a helicopter pilot named Odenbaugh. And then they just disappeared. And the Soviets were desperate to get technology and pilots from the U.S. because the U.S. aircraft were the same aircraft that would be flown against the Soviet Union if the Cold War turned hot. Mm. And we have records of numerous senior Soviet officers, including one of the top Soviet officers operating in the Korean theater, who said that American pilots uh, were taken and sent to the Soviet Union. Now, I guess that makes sense for, for pilots, but what about other prisoners, either uh, Marines or uh, yeah. or infantrymen. Yeah. Why do you believe North Korea kept those prisoners? What did they do with them? What were they used for? Sure. So in general, the declassified CIA documents note that by the middle of the war, the CIA had reports that there were three types of prison camps being used by the communists. The first were, quote unquote, the normal prisoner camps. All of them were in North Korea. And these were for Americans who were going to be returned at the end of the war. The other two types of camps were in China. These were secret camps, and we forced out numerous reports about them. One was the peace camps, the other were, were reform camps. Peace camps were for Americans that the Soviets thought they could turn into, essentially into communists, thereby support various uh, missions and goals of the Soviets. The other type of secret camp were reform camps, which were for people who had technical talent or had some other use, but who were considered recalcitrant and you know, needed to be indoctrinated in a much more dramatic uh, manner. Mm. The important thing about all this is that everything that happened in the Korean War in terms of the communist exploitation of POWs had already happened in World War II. So the Soviets had kept hundreds of thousands, millions of German 
and Japanese prisoners of war after World War II and had exploited them for technology, everything from uh, technology, you know, uh, taking people who had engineering talent and using them to help engineer weapons or other technology, or importantly, uh, helping the Soviets use technology they had captured from the Germans. So everything from technology to those POWs who were considered anti-communist and were used in gulag camps where no one ever came out alive, were essentially mm -hmm. worked to death. So they had this elaborate system, and they kept POWs, some of them forever, but they were still releasing German and Japanese POWs into the 1950s. So all they had, all the Soviets had to do was sort of take the same general principle they had used in World War II and apply it to the Americans. And in fact, in some of the camps, the Americans in the Gulag were reported to be in the same camps that had housed Germans and Japanese. It was a to, system. To come back to North Korea, so over the last two decades, we've seen instances where uh, American tourists or visitors to North Korea get taken prisoner and then they're used as bargaining chips. But if they're kept secret, as these prisoners of war were, they cannot be used as bargaining chips. So doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? No. The communists had various reasons to keep uh, POWs. So I mentioned that uh, one would be for technical skills or knowledge, which could include uh, you know, intelligence officers. The other would be the uh, Soviets, for instance, according to the declassified records, hoped to do with the Americans exactly what they had done with the Japanese, which was to develop an American communist staff for military operations, potentially if there were an all-out war. They had, the uh, Soviets had, uh, had trained many Japanese and then infiltrated them back into Japan as agents. So getting agents was important. The ones that were kept in North Korea, I believe, and North Korean ambassador to the um, UN, Ho Jong, in the 1990s alluded to this, were those who did not want to go back to America. So there's reporting that indicates that some of these guys were in North Korean hands. They had not been killed. They had not died. They had not been shipped to China or the Soviet Union, but they had gone over to the North Korean side. Mm -hmm. And the North Koreans agreed to shield them and kept them. So they were not the defectors during the Cold War, but they probably made a separate peace with the North Koreans for various reasons. Now, under the Geneva Convention and the general rules of, of land warfare, at the end of the war, it would be expected, and this certainly happened with Americans who were captured in Europe during this time period, that they would be allowed to affirm their choice to an American, right? They would say, no, I really don't want to go back. And that's what the 21 Americans who ended up going to China did even though they all changed their minds later, almost all of them. But I believe these guys were kept in many cases because of ideological reasons. The North Koreans felt they had to protect them and kept them for that reason. Now, I'm sure some of them may have had other, other uses, like the, the ones that they did indeed get some of the North Korean pilots, uh, I'm sorry, the, the U.S. pilots from Vietnam, those were kept for, for uh, technical reasons, right? They could help with the North Korean air defense and fighter training and that sort of thing. And in fact, a couple of Caucasians were seen by a North Korean commando. Some of his circumstances are classified. I believe he was the man North Korean commando captured alive uh, after the Blue House raid in 1968 when the North Koreans tried to kill the president of South Korea. This uh, commando saw these Caucasians and was told they were U.S. pilots from Vietnam, and they were being held in a pretty well-known agent, agent safe house region. So there were multiple reasons. I think it, if it's true that Oh Young Nam saw 20 to 30 Americans alive as of the early 90s, 
I believe those were men who went over to the North Korean side and were promised shelter after the war. I think there were also um, in the not immediately after the Korean War, but around the time that Oyong Nam was talking about, there were some. Uh, uh, it's possible there's some people from East Eastern Europe who are living there, a or um, absolutely so, or uh, foreign students from places like Nigeria or Gabon who were there in could explain some of the black people there. So, how do you account for that? Yeah. So dis to distinguish them, and by the way, as you know, the many of those people or some of those people were involved in a program that the North Koreans had to get foreigners to, in effect, breed spies who look Caucasian. And you've probably seen the videos of Dresnok's uh, two sons mm -hmm. who served in the uh, in the North Korean military who both look Caucasian. Uh, yeah. So this was an intergenerational espionage effort. And so some of the American POWs from Korea may have been kept for those kind of reasons. But to your point, the distinguishing factor is while there were students of African descent, they were not elderly, and there were certainly not that many of them. And according to some of these North Korean defectors, they actually, there was a place called the American Compound in Pyongyang, which mm -hmm. these people were associated with. They were also reported, a number of them in the, the Sungho district east of Pyongyang. While anything is possible, and these these reports of the Americans alive in North Korea cannot be confirmed, uh, although I think the multitude and the quality of them is compelling. It appears to me when I try to remove the U.S. defectors, I try to remove foreign visitors. There are sightings, for example, a, a Romanian guy whom I got to know well said he saw Americans working in the fields in North Korea. He reported to the Pentagon. They then found another Romanian on the bus who um, said he saw the same thing. And the Pentagon said, well, maybe those are Eastern European uh, Caucasians helping with the harvest, or maybe they're biracial children from the war. The Romanians uh, fiercely objected to that and said, no, they were POWs. And in fact, one of them was told they were POWs. But I kind of put those to the side, right? Because those you can say, it's impossible to tell. But mm. the Ouyang Nam group, when these people talk about specific, America, specific people they saw who were Caucasian or Black, they were these people either told them or their daughter told them or the other guards there told them they were American POWs. I tend to think that those are probably in a different bucket than, you know, mistaking a, a defector or a student from Cameroon or something. Right. Now, at, at, the, at the very beginning of this uh, interview, you uh, alluded to the fact that North Korea has not so much recently, but in the 1990s and the early 2000s, made quite a bit of money from the United States by digging up bones of, uh, of U.S. servicemen and, and giving them back to the United States. It would seem that if there were some prisoners who lived on and then died of old age at some later point, that it would be an easy win for North Korea to find these people's bones and sell them to effectively sell them to the United States. But they haven't done that. Well, the North Koreans have probably hundreds of U.S. remains that they keep inventory to sell back to us. And in fact, the North Koreans, the declassified U.S. documents show, have engaged in what's called salting of remains, meaning, uh, for instance, in one case, the U.S. got remains from North Korea, and it was uh, an Air Force pilot who was, uh, the North Koreans said, was found in an infantry fighting hole in North Korea. But he had actually been shot down 80 miles away. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. analysts are convinced that uh, the North Koreans have remains and just, in many cases, just literally put them on the ground or claim they came from one place so they can sell them back. The problem with, with the North Koreans, so the North Koreans have more than enough remains to sell back 
without taking the risk that if they have someone who was kept after the war and the DNA shows now that we can do DNA, the DNA identifies the name of the person that yeah. the circumstances of that person will not match and it might reignite US interest in whether that guy was kept after the war. Because in addition, nowadays forensics can get general estimates of lifespan. Right. So, you know, if the North Koreans were to return the bones of someone who died in 1992 and the US found out it was, you know, private so and so and who had not been accounted for but was last uh, seen being overrun by the North Koreans and the forensics says said that he was probably somebody in his uh, you know in his 70s that would not be good for the North Koreans wouldn't be good for the Americans either right absolutely and so i lose lose for both in yeah, that case. you know so i, I want to be clear i do not believe that there is a conspiracy here i know from having tried to drag this information out of the government for more than 30 years after I first started exposing this back in the days when I was a journalist, the Pentagon sent a admiral from the Defense Intelligence Agency who mm. said, told Congress that the U.S. had kept the Soviet Union, China, and North Korea under microscopic surveillance and that there had never been any evidence to suggest this happened. That was all proven to be a lie within three years when much of this information was declassified. But I believe that that admiral who went to say there was no information, he didn't know. All this stuff was, in many occasions, I've gotten declassified documents that the current Pentagon POW officials have never seen and don't know about. It was essentially all boxed up and done, and done by the end of the 1950s. You know, I can trace intelligence units that were looking for U.S. POWs up until 58, 59, you know, five or six years after the war. They were ultimately just shut down. Uh, there was another flap that occurred in 1996 because when Ouyang Nam came out, the Pentagon internally, and this was all kept classified, their top Korean North Korean analyst said, there are two groups of, of Americans in North Korea. One are the defectors, the other are 10 to 50, 15 uh, mm -hmm. surviving US POWs. And, and he based this on all these reports they had, many of which remain classified. So the Pentagon still refuses to declassify documents for me about North Koreans alive in North Korea. I'm sorry, about Americans alive in North Korea after the war. Those are still classified, many of them. But this Pentagon official who's a Korean American, he told the Pentagon POW office, there are at least 10 to 15 Americans still alive in North Korea, POWs, not defectors, as of 96. And he suggested not only a very substantial intelligence effort, including satellite imagery and other collection, but he recommended that the US government through the State Department go to the North Koreans and say, we know you still still have some of our POWs, give them back. And exactly what happened after that is still classified, but you know, we know that the State Department never did that. And so obviously somebody decided it, you know, it's not worth it to uh, make a fuss over this. Now, in the case of South Koreans who were kept after the armistice was signed, and, and, and I think the number you gave was close to 10,000, quite a lot of them. Some of them in, in much later decades, a handful of them were able to escape from North Korea, and a couple of them even made it as far uh, back to South Korea again. Yes, and, um, many of them made it to South Korea. So, and, and some so of them that, even you know, sued uh, the government of North Korea, you know, for, or tried to sue, and it's very difficult in a South Korean court. Yeah. As far as you know, have, has any American serviceman who was held in either the Soviet Union in China or in North Korea, has any of them made it out and told their story? No, so as of the date of the book, which was in 2013, it was estimated that more than 100 South Korean POWs were still alive. 
And over time, a number of them have returned. And uh, some of one of them even came here to the United States to give speeches and, you know, was someone of great interest to the U.S.-Korean War uh, POW uh, families. Most of these North Korean rock POWs were kept in specific locations, one coal mining facility. No Americans have gotten out with the following proviso. The Chinese secretly kept almost 20 U.S. and allied pilots and air crew members after the war as part of this hostage negotiation. They then admitted that they had them not long after the armistice, and there were years of negotiations to get them back. So those guys came back years after being captured after secret captivity in China. And in fact, one of them I got to know, and he told me, for example, that one of his crew members he had seen alive in Chinese captivity, but that crew member was never released. Is it possible he died? Yeah. So th this is this is the big question, Jacko, of what happened to all these guys. Some of the family members retain hope, although now they're all so old that they are almost dead. But the Soviets, for example, allowed some of their German and Japanese POWs that they kept uh, and did not return to go back to civilian life, in effect, often in controlled areas. So there was a Japanese prisoner who was found in the Gulag, well, not in the Gulag, but had been shipped from the Gulag and allowed to remain in a controlled area of the former Soviet Union in the 1990s. In the book, we talk about this incredible report of a person. Uh, here, let me tell you about it. This is a still partially uh, censored, classified U.S. intelligence document. In 1995, the source, who apparently is a North Korean defector, visited the home of, and they censored the name, of the daughter of an American prisoner of war. It says the source spent two hours in the presence of the POW. He did not interact with him. And this is a quote, the POW was five feet away inside a mud home where the ceiling was so low that the American would have had to walk bent over. The POW rolled over to face the wall, but did not speak. The daughter of the POW told, told this source who then defected that they were poor and that the wife, the, so the American POW had a North Korean wife, and this is very, this is what happened to the U.S. defectors. It's very common for the North Koreans to marry. If their prisoners are not actually in one of the labor camps, they are sometimes allowed to marry. So according to this North Korean defector, the wife of the American POW said they were poor and their son was an outcast due to his Western appearance. And so the U.S. intelligence followed up on that. They actually showed uh, satellite imagery of the village to the source. But what happened after that is still classified. The source says he last saw the American's daughter in 1998. And so one thing, Jacko, at the POW Investigative Project, which I'm hoping you'll mention at the beginning of this, we solicit information from North Koreans and North Korean defectors and the Korean diaspora for information because I believe that there are the children of American POWs and potentially now the grandchildren of American POWs who remain alive. And the U.S. intelligence officer in the Pentagon who basically in 1996 said, we know they have POWs, we should try to get them back. He told me that he believes that one day DNA tests, if North Korea is ever free, or less likely that any of these uh, family members escape because, of course, they're in high control zones in North Korea due to ideological reasons. He believes that this issue may be exposed by the DNA testing of the families of these POWs from North Korea.
Yes, I guess at the at this stage, given that you know most of these men, the original prisoners, have probably passed on, that probably the the, the best thing you can offer their families is the uh, the hope that one day one of their descendants will come out and prove. You know, uh, Jacko, in the United States, there's a there's a whole category of news stories about people who sign up for these DNA ancestry sites mm. and find they have siblings or parents or other people they never knew about. And ultimately, that may happen to some of the American uh, POW-MIA families who, by the way, are still fighting for the truth. We haven't had time to get into the, the issue of the remains and the failure of the U.S. government to identify many remains, including ones that it had in Hawaii. But many of the families are still fighting, and they're old. So now it's often the not just the children of the POWs, but the grandchildren of mm. the POWs. So these families want to know what happened. And it's uh, it's possible that could happen through DNA. And I should also note that if it is true, if these reports that some small number of American prisoners of war were sent by the North Vietnamese to North Korea, it is conceivable that some of them could be alive, although they too are coming to the end. Although that's interesting, given the very positive relations between Vietnam and the United States now that no one has come out yet from Vietnam and said, oh, by the way, you should know about this. Yeah, the, the Vietnamese, uh, and we could talk about this for another five hours, but there are key parts of the Vietnamese POW program that they never talk about, that they've never told us about. And the declassified records from the U.S. government make it very clear that the Vietnamese keep many secrets about our POWs. Mm. And the Vietnamese, again, gain, there's nothing they gain from opening a can of worms saying, oh, by the way, you, uh, Washington, D.C., is not asking about this right now. But by the way, we sent uh, five of our POWs we captured to North Korea in return for them giving us MiG fighter pilots. Right. Because then it opens up the whole issue with North Vietnam. It pisses off the North Koreans and the North Vietnamese. It's, it, this whole thing is the, there's an American expression called, let sleeping dogs lie. All these governments want to let sleeping dogs lie. There's no benefit from any government, sadly, not for the U.S. government, not for the Vietnamese, not for the North Koreans. The Soviets, back in the 90s, there was a, a joint commission started between the U.S. and the Soviet Union on POW issues, where we shared information, for instance, information we had about Soviet POWs in Afghanistan from their Afghanistan war. And that joint commission, which was U.S. senators, congressional representative, congressmen, they concluded in the 90s, uh, let's see, about these shipments. The U.S. side of the Joint Commission has collected a significant amount of information. This is a message from the U.S. to the Soviets that suggests there's a high probability that during the Korean War, American POWs were transferred from Korea to the Soviet Union. So the U.S. government told the Soviets in the 90s, we know you took these guys, right? Mm. Remember in 1954, the State Department said, you took our POWs again back, and the Soviets said, we don't know what you're talking about. Yep. In the 1990s, the U.S. said, hey, we've been investigating this with you, and you took the POWs. So the evidence was not only these Soviet aviation officers and, and advisors who said that they were involved in shipping Americans. For instance, there was a, a Soviet guy I met in Russia named uh, Gabriel Kortkov, who was uh, worked with uh, Soviet intelligence. He was a lieutenant during the Korean War, and he talked about processing Americans to go to the Soviet Union, who were on their way to the Soviet Union. And one tragic thing that he said was, you know, I, I'm a Soviet officer who's an expert on POWs, and I worked with German POWs during World War II, and they often would give right up. When I told them, look, you're going to go to Siberia, you'll never come home. Do you want to live or die? Do you want to 
stay in a camp or you'll be fed or be sent to a uranium mining camp or you're going to die. The Germans gave up. And this uh, officer, Kortkov, said the Americans were defiant. When we tried to get them to go over to the communist side, they said, I'm an American and my country will come and get me. And this was 40 years after the war. And even Kortkov seemed sad because he knew that the American government never came for those guys. I've got one last question for you, Mark. So, I mean, given what we've talked about, the inertia, the cynicism of bureaucracy, the difficulty of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, what really is the best thing that you could hope for in the best of ideas, the best possible world? I'll tell you exactly what it is, Jacko. I hope that one of your listeners goes to the POW Investigator Project, www.powinvestigatorproject.org, and reads in Korean, Chinese, Russian, uh, Vietnamese, or Lao about clues that we need, about information that, that pertains to these issues, and sends us via a secure email information saying, my dad was an American POW. I'm a North Korean who, who escaped to South Korea. Or my father was a KGB officer, and he left me these pictures of American POWs he knew in the gulag. So uh, please do uh, let your listeners know that we are actively collecting this information, because if something like that happens, the U.S. government will be forced to act. If we find that kind of compelling evidence now, it will create a flap. The Congress will make them get back into this issue and try to find out what really happened. POWinvestigativeproject.org. Right. So, the, yeah, the search goes on. So if you have information out there, get in touch with uh, Mark Sauter at uh, POWinvestigativeproject.org. We'll share a link in the show notes on the website. Uh, thank you very much, Mark Sauter, for coming on the NK News podcast. Uh, people could, as well as looking at your website, people can also order your book that came out in 2013, American Trophies, uh, through Amazon. It's about 350 pages. There's lots of stories in there. Uh, photographs of, of the soldiers that have gone missing and also the, the documents and letters that refer to them. So uh, thanks once again for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jacko. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can through our new Korea Pro News and Analysis Service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Thanks as always to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening and listening again next time. <laughs>